This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Rico Bronia time. How's everybody doing? Evan Roberts. You can hear me on the fan with Craig. Pete Hoffman does a fine job producing Tiki and Tierney. Welcome to the mailbag edition of Rico Bronia. A lot of emails, a lot of tweets. A lot of topics will be discussed over the next however many minutes we decide to talk. But I made you a promise on the last Rico, and Pete and I are here to deliver on promises. I forget why we were talking about R.A. Dickey. I'm not sure, but it reminded me of the great Christopher Mad Dog Russo rant that he had about R.A. Dickey. If you recall back in 2008, the Mets played a game against the Mariners. Dickey was on the Mariners. He had been called up. He'd come out of nowhere. He was 33 years old, and the Mets got embarrassed. They got their ass handed to them. They lost to the Mariners that night, 11-0, and R.A. Dickey pitched seven brilliant innings. The next day, I was doing middays with Joe, and Dog was solo. And when Dog was solo, crazy crap would happen. And he went on a a maniacal rant about R.A. Dickey. Now, before we play you some clips from this rant, like we promised, special thanks to Dove Kramer. I gave Dove the date, and I said, can you supply me with Dog Show? And we'll find the audio ourselves. And he did. So I have to admit, I listen to a lot of this show. I listen to Dog Kill the Yankees. I listen to Dog Put Me Over. He actually gave me props on the air for giving him a good book recommendation and then saying how... I know why Evan has a lot of girlfriends. He's smart. <laughs> I had no idea why he said that. But thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. I did not have a lot of girlfriends, but thank you. I'll go with it anyway. So Dog went on this dicky rant. We got two clips for you. First is the one that you may remember. Uh, the Mets had lost. The Yankees had lost. Dog hated the Mets and Yankees. So he was in a very, very good mood. Plus, there was no Mike. We present to you the R.A. Dickey rant. I understand it's slow. I'm no Mike here to bounce things off, just yours truly. But, I mean, could you make it any easier? You gave me that much of a layup? R.A. Dickey. Let me say that one more time loudly. R A Dickey. 
I love the breath at the end. <sighs> like he's out of breath. Oh, hey, that guy. So I kept listening because I thought that he did it again, and he did. So just to remind everybody, so Mets lose this game. Jerry Manuel's been managing the team for about a week and a half, and there's a lot of us, I was certainly one of them, that thought they had to make this move. And I guess that night, Jerry Manuel came out and argued and got thrown out of the game. Carlos Beltran argued and got thrown out of the game. So there were a few Mets fans saying, hey, look, that's the difference between Jerry and Willie Randolph. And that also set Dog off. And that set him off on a, another rant involving R.A. Dickey. Now we're going to sit there and say that the manager is the reason why. You know, what a great job. Look at Manuel. Ah, that's what I want to see. You lost to R.A. Dickey. R. With no ligament. No ligament. No ligament. And who else what he has? I don't know. R.A. Dickey. He's a 33-year-old has-been. Can't get me out. <laughs> Pitches in Salakata's stupid league. What? <laughs> what? That, that R.A. Dickey. Did Salakata have a stupid league? I wasn't familiar with that. <laughs> Were you doing, doing Twitter baseball back then and he didn't realize? No, I wasn't even. <laughs> that was in the days before Twitter baseball. This is 08. Oh, man. And so little did we know, little did Dog know, that he would learn who Ari Dickey was because he ended up having a really good career with the Mets. So there you go. We delivered on our promise, your dog Ari Dickey rant. And the reason why we were talking about Ari Dickey was because I suggested he be in the Mets Hall of Fame. After that rant, I think he needs to be in the WFAN Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes. That's one of my favorites. Like if I made a list of kind of famed rants or discussions that have occurred on WFAN, That'd be in my top 10. That would absolutely be in my top 10, along with Mike and Chris arguing about bathrooms at Yankee Stadium. That's also up there. By the way, speaking of which, and this will lead right into our mailbag, and I do want to address Starling Marte and the injury situation with him, but one common theme I saw was both Pete and I getting a lot of, a lot of pushback, and rightfully so, by the way, a lot of anger that when we were talking about the Met Hall of Fame, and we brought up names of guys who could eventually get in. I brought up Joanna Cespedes. We talked about the obvious ones, David Wright, Jose Reyes. You brought up Bartolo Colon. Neither one of us mentioned Daniel Murphy. And that received a lot of anger from some Met fans who said, how could you do that? How, could, how the hell could you not mention Daniel Murphy? You know, Daniel Murphy, uh, especially considering the NLCS MVP, the run that he went on, and he was also a beloved Met who was here for a while. Let's not forget that. He came up as late as 2008, I think, was his, uh, the first year we saw him. And obviously played all the way till 2015. I think it's a great point. I think it's true. I think that many years from now, because I don't think that's something you do in the next couple of years. But yeah, I think we're going to look back at Daniel Murphy in a positive light. We'll try to forget about the fact he tortured us with the Washington Nationals. So I think Murphy is definitely a good name. And that's a bad job by Pete. Pete should have Wait, mentioned him. Hold, hold, hold on. Because here's the funny thing is that I actually, I'm a defender of Daniel Murphy, but I wouldn't put him in the Hall of Fame for the Mets. Why is that? Because as good as he was, 
the knock on him was he wasn't that good, which is why people were okay with him leaving. If you were, he really did his most damage after he left. That was what well, most people remember him for. for. No, Obviously I think the playoff he, run. Yeah, well, that, that's it. I think his most damage was the playoff run. But you know what's more important than the stats, especially when we're talking about a Met Hall of Fame. We're not talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was a beloved Met, and I think you can see that. You can see that based on the way Met fans talk about him, the emails we get about him. Just the conversation around Daniel Murphy. I mean, no one's going to sit here. And that's why it's so different when you talk Met Hall of Fame and Baseball Hall of Fame. We're not breaking down someone's war or how many gold gloves they won or MVP voting. We're talking about the Met Hall of Fame. The Met Hall of Fame is for us as fans. And Murphy was a beloved Met. He really was. And look, you're right. His best years were not with us. But he was such a big part of why that team went on the run in 2015 that uh, he probably does deserve at some point let down the road because, look, it takes a while to get to the Mets Hall of Fame. I mean, Howard Johnson's going in now. <laughs> He's been away from the Mets for a long time as a player. But I, I get I think Murphy's definitely a name who should be considered down the road. Uh, one thing before we get to the emails and the tweets, Starling Marte, Andy Martino made the report that he had core surgery and that really there's no update on his future for spring training or opening day. Just the idea of they're going to reevaluate him once he gets there. The only thing we do know is he's not going to play in the World Baseball Classic, which I'm thrilled about because there are certain guys, I don't care if they play in the WBC, go play baseball. Obviously, there's a risk you could get hurt. There's a risk you can get hurt doing anything. There's a risk you can get hurt in spring training. But when a guy has an injury history, and last year, Starling Marte was great when he played it felt like there was always something wrong with him. There was always some kind of injury. So that's the kind of guy that I would want to put, you know, what's that phrase? Like in uh, mothballs? I don't know if that makes sense. No, no uh, bubble wrap. Bubble wrap. Mothballs? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I'm sorry, I'm tired. What do you want from me? Did a whole day of afternoon drive with Craig, watch the Nets game. Like, come on, I'm tired. Mothballs, not mothballs. Uh, what did I just say? Bubble wrap. Yeah, yeah, bubble wrap. So, I don't know. I, I hope he's ready for opening day. We know about the Mets' lack of outfield depth. The one thing this will create, and it should be created anyway, is the idea of either McNeil or Beatty playing a lot of outfield. And the reason I say either is because it really depends on how you want to situate guys. If Brett Beatty can learn to play left field and be adequate over there, great. Brett Brady pays a lot of left. Nimmo in center, you shift Mark Canada right. But if you feel better about keeping Beatty at third base, Jeff McNeil plays the outfield. Beatty plays third. Escobar plays second. We didn't see a lot of Eduardo Escobar last year at second base, but he can play second base. So that's really up to Buck in terms of, okay, who do you feel more comfortable shifting to the outfield? So while my natural reaction was, okay, if Marte misses time, and he's going to miss time anyway, he just is, Beatty at-bats in the outfield make a lot of sense. But the truth is, Beatty at-bats at third base can make a lot of sense with Escobar playing second and McNeil playing the outfield. That that can work too. Either way, it gets Brett Beatty at-bats. That's the key. It's the key to the whole thing. Ah, yes. Bring up the rookies. That'd be very nice. Um, well, ba- by the- Beatty better make the team, Pete. You know, Alvarez and Beatty are very different. I'll stay with this about Beatty. Beatty should be on the team. I don't want to. I don't want to hear about him being a Triple A. I can deal with Alvarez at Triple A more than I can deal with Beatty at Triple A. 
Listen, they're, but they both should bo- have at bats this season, and they should both be batting at least three hundred at bats. They should both have three hundred plate appearances, no matter what. What if they get if Alvarez gets called up in a month? I'm okay with that. The one thing is, and, and just to get back to the the Marte injury issue, it's funny we had. Uh, Jacob Degrom out for most of the season. We had Max Scherzer out for majority of the se- uh, for a decent amount of the season. And the biggest hiccup the Mets had was when Stalin Marte was out. He's that yeah. important. He's that valuable. So FDWC. Oh, no, no doubt about it. All right, let me ask uh, answer a couple emails that are related to this. Daniel Summerfield writes, Evan, how do you feel about the WBC coming up? It seems exciting, but at the end of the day, I care more about a Mets World Series. Any concern that big players like Pete Alonso or Starling Marte, who we just addressed, who had a hard time playing all season anyways, may get hurt and miss time for the Mets. Jeff McNeil's now playing for USA. I have this fear he's going to pull a quad running to first. What do you think? <laughs> so with McNeil's had injuries too, so... I guess there's a part of me that's always worried about him. Pete Alonzo, and I knock on wood when I say this because I don't want to mush or jinx anybody, has stayed healthy for the most part. I can't be afraid of the WBC like it's a boogeyman. Because when you really think about it, if Pete wasn't in Arizona training for Team USA and Jeff wasn't on Team USA, they'd be playing baseball in Port St. Lucie. Now, you want to tell me they're trying harder in the World Baseball Classic, I, I guess. And I watched Pete Alonso in spring training in the past. He tries. He swings. He tries to hit a home run. He runs the first base. Baseball's baseball. So I'm just giving you a logical answer here. And I get that if Jeff McNeil pulls a hamstring in the World Baseball Classic, it's going to be very easy to look back at that and say, see, I know Mark Teixeira got hurt in the WBC a decade ago. But I remember saying this about Mark then, and I'll say it about McNeil and Alonzo now. You can get hurt playing baseball anywhere. So Marte's different because of the injury history and also because I think with a guy like Marte, you may not play him a lot in spring training. So I think that would have been the difference where you could have said, all right, I got a guy who's 34. I got a guy who's missed a lot of time. I'm not playing him as much in spring training as I am a young bull like Pete Alonzo. So overall, I don't I don't fear it that much. Todd writes, do you think Nelson Doubleday should be in the Met Hall of Fame? <laughs> well, he had to put up with the wall ponds for a long time, and he certainly went out and helped make the Mike Piazza trade. So I guess I I don't really care one way or the other about Nelson Doubleday. Like it doesn't really do much for me. Greg Brunswick wrote a very long main email. And by mean, I mean he just thought we were wrong about everything we said. But I want to give Greg the airtime, so I'm going to read his email, and then we can try to respond to it. Here's how he starts it, by the way. This is when you know he's about to kill you. Hey, guys, I'd like to know what drugs you're on. That's how it starts, right out of the gate. You're comparing Valentine to Terry Collins. How do you not realize the vast difference in quality and recognize the incredible run of 97 to 2000? Valentine always added wins to the team, presided over a major renaissance for the franchise. Terry Collins was a joke for the most part. He succumbed to his rosters. He never elevated them, not even close. That's part one. He's going to criticize a bunch of things. Um, First of all, I don't mean to just throw this on Pete. I disagreed 
with comparing Collins to Valentine. Bobby Valentine is on another level. That doesn't mean I wouldn't consider Collins for the Mets Hall of Fame down the road. He didn't manage the team to a pennant. But I do overall agree that I felt watching both teams and both managers that Bobby Valentine would steal wins, that he was that good of a manager. I never felt that way about Terry Collins. That doesn't mean I want to badmouth Terry and say he's an idiot and he's a schmuck and he should never be in the Met Hall of Fame. But if the idea is who is a better manager, to me it's easy. It was Bobby V. But I don't think we should look at Collins as a, quote, joke, as Greg suggests. Right. And and what I would debate you and go back to you on, and, and Greg, you know, I appreciate the criticism, but Terry Collins was handed crap rosters for majority of his tenure. The fact that they made a World Series in itself is outrageous. I know they had young, talented pitching staff. I know they had, you know, Daniel Murphy going off and Cespedes was amazing and stuff like that, but... But Terry Collins is the face of that, was the manager of that team. You have to give him a little bit of credit. Remember, he had to deal with pulling Wilmer Flores off and dealing with that nonsense when he was quote-unquote traded. He had to deal with a lot of BS during that time. So I think he handled himself pretty freaking well and should be reward, should be acknowledged for what he had to deal with. Uh, number two from Greg that he was pissed about, Johan Santana. What? With one great year and two other very good years, he's a Met Hall of Famer. Oh, my God, this is amateurish. Are you guys remotely serious? Santana's hardly even remembered as a Met. He's a footnote. Look, this comes down to the no-hitter, Greg. That's what it comes down to. Obviously, the fact that Johan Santana really only had three good years with the team is not what would put him in the Met Hall of Fame. What would put him in the Met Hall of Fame is that, to me, maybe not to Greg, I don't know, that no-hitter is a top-five moment in the history of the franchise over the last 30 years, wherever you want to rank it. So, look, you think it's a one-hitter or you don't think it's real, that's fine, we disagree. But I think Santana lives in Met history a lot stronger than you realize because of the no-hitter. But here's the last part. This this is where I'm going to lose my mind a little bit, so I'm going to try to stay calm. You continue to overrate DeGrom, and you underrate Syndergaard. In 2015, DeGrom choked in his one World Series start. Syndergaard won his on top of pitching brilliantly throughout the postseason. (sighs) Deep breath in. DeGrom bailed on the 2016 season, after which the Mets went on a run and made the playoffs on Syndergaard's shoulders. DeGrom would make a habit of bailing on seasons in which the Mets were good, 2016, 2021, 2022, while dominating in garbage time. The effing idea DeGrom would get his number retired is absurd. It's honestly ludicrous. Now, sir, your first two complaints had some validity to it. This third complaint is amateurish, to use your word. Number one. Jacob deGrom is the reason the Mets got to a World Series, or at least one of the main reasons. He outpitched Clayton Kershaw in Game 1. You ignore that. He showed balls of stone in Game 5. You ignore that. He pitched great in his NLCS start. You ignore that. And in the World Series, yeah. And look, I can't deny that his fifth inning was a disaster. He pitched four no-hit innings to start his Game 2 World Series start. And then maybe he ran out of gas. I, I, I can't explain it. Or maybe he was just bad. Whatever the reason. He sucked, no doubt. But you, my friend, 
have taken all of Jacob DeGrom's postseason starts and you've literally narrowed it down to one shitty inning. Now, is that fair? Now, you may have an agenda against him, and that's fine. I don't know. Maybe he didn't sign an autograph for you. I don't know. But that's ridiculous. That part's ridiculous. Number two, 100% on Syndergaard. The, he helped carry them to the wild card spot and did a hell of a job in the wild card game against the Giants. I got no issues with Syndergaard. You're right about what he did. To say DeGrom bailed, he needed surgery to end the 2016 season. He got hurt. He bailed. Bailed on 2021. All right. That's, you know, whatever. Uh, I That one, I guess you have more in your conspiracy than 16. And in 2022, how'd he bail? He pitched when it mattered. You want to criticize him for what happened in Oakland? Fine. He sucked. But he actually won the only playoff game they won and was actually halfway decent in Atlanta while Max Scherzer crapped the bet. So, Greg, what are you talking about? All right? What are you talking about? With that said, I'd like to invite Greg on the podcast anytime if we want to further this debate because I would love to talk to you as a human about your stupid DeGrom opinions. All right? Thank you very much. Uh, Clayton Caldwell has a theory on Al Leiter. I loved Al. He was my favorite as a kid. Everything you said about him, I loved him. Then he went on the Yes broadcast, and a couple of times he took a bleep on the Mets. He and Michael Kay are good buddies. I know for a fact he cited his resume on how he knows their buddies. Who cares? But that's what bothered me. I know that Kay despises the Mets and loves to take shots, but he's a Yankee, and that's expected from him. But I recall at least once or twice Al doing the same things when times were bad. I just felt as someone who was self-proclaimed himself as a Met fan growing up, I thought he was above that. All right. That's a part of the reason why maybe he turned on Al Leiter. I guess. I I, I don't know. I, I, I think working for the Yankees sometimes annoys people. Uh, I don't know if they ever did that with Tom Seaver, though. I mean, Tom Seaver worked for the Yankees. James Sarvey writes, hey, Evan, you probably have some insider info or may have been there recently. Ooh, he thinks I have insider info. What's up with the City Field updates, especially this football size screen people were talking about so we can see Vogelbach's 150-foot ass in high definition? <laughs> All these leaked photos recently look nothing like the mock enormous screen we were told. Do you have any information? So, James, I don't have information, but I'll tell you this. And this is a part of my geekdom, I guess, a part of what makes me me. I don't want to see it. When I go and walk into City Field on opening day, I love to be surprised. I love to see things for the first time. So while I know there's a big screen coming and I've seen the artist renderings of it, I try to avoid seeing the pictures of what it looks like right now as they're installing it. Because to me, a part of the fun of opening day is seeing something for the first time. Yeah, seeing the changes for the first time. So I apologize. No inside information. And I wanted to share that that kind of weirdness about me, that I don't want to see it before opening day. Brian Safchik writes, with Arnie Moreno not selling the Angels, what impact do you think that'll have on when and if Otani is traded? I guess the theory is, since Moreno is such a crappy owner, 
that it would only add to the idea that Otani would leave. So here's my concern about Otani. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more of these discussions in more detail as time goes by. If the Angels suck, I think they're going to trade him. Or at least I'd say it's about 60-40, 70-30 they trade him. Maybe not a guarantee, especially if they plan on trying to re-sign him. You know, then you don't trade him. I don't know how much I'm going to be willing to give up in August. I, I don't. And I guess we'll have a big debate on it. We'll see what Alvarez's impact is with the Mets this year, if any. What Pareda does in the minor leagues. What Ramirez does in the minor leagues. What Beatty does, either at the majors or minors. I don't know. Like, I can give you an opinion on what I would trade today for Shohei Otani, knowing I've got him for a full season. It's different once you get to August. It is. It's different based on how the Mets are doing. It's different based on the year Otani's having. If you think trading for him gives you a better chance at signing him, it's a different story, but I don't think it does. And, and I am concerned. I've, I've always had confidence that the Mets are going to go heavy after him, and I stand by that. They will. I'm starting to think more and more that he doesn't want to come to the East Coast, and that's going to be something that hurts them. So do they have to outbid the Dodgers and the Padres and the Giants by that much to get him? I don't know. And maybe the Mets will be willing to do it. CC Sabathia didn't want to come here, but the Yankees outbid him. So the Otani discussion is twofold. Number one, if the Angels fall out of it, what are we willing to give up for him at the deadline? Right now, I lean towards not much for a rental. I, I don't know, man. And then during the offseason, it's going to come down to does the guy want to be here? Could I uh, ask a question about that, actually? Because I have a, a tweet from Adam Ro- Ross 13, whatever, on Twitter. Am I the only Mets fan not enthused with the idea of giving Otani $500 plus million? He brings up a really good question that I brought up off the air. His value comes from being an elite two-way player. How many years do you think this level of play on both sides of the ball is sustainable for? And to be honest with you, too, which side, eventually I think one side is going to just dissipate. He's going to probably be just either a hitter or a pitcher. It's such a complete unknown. I mean, we're dealing with something that has no history. So I could sit here and try to speculate, but it's just impossible. It's impossible to know because we've never seen a player do this. I I would lean towards if it's only one thing, it's hitting. It's, hey, go get 500 at-bats a season as a designated hitter, more so than pitching there's more risk to arm injuries pitching. So if I had to guess, I would say that's the case. But I think with this owner, you can't freak out about the money. You just have to say they are taking a a gem that we've never seen before who could potentially be like having Max Scherzer and Carlos Correa. You know what I mean? I only use those two guys as an example because they almost had Correa and Scherzer from last year. But that's what he is. He's a bat. But he's also a dominant pitcher. You're signing two for the price of one, which is why, in theory, $50 million a year is a steal. It is. Is Shohei Otani as an offensive player worth more than $25 million a year? Probably. Is Shohei Otani as a pitcher worth more than $25 million a year? Yeah. Probably. So you get him for 50, it's a steal. But I think with this owner, we can't freak out about how much money it is. And you have to realize. Yeah, you're signing something we've never seen before, this comet flying through the air. There's a risk that you're only getting the two-way guy for two of the years of his contract, or the three of years of his contract. And if that's what it is, then at the end of his contract, you've just got a really high-priced, awesome hitter. And you hope he can still hit at a high level, obviously. That'd be my thought on that. Um, Keith King 
In the past, the Mets have been pretty split on Brandon Nemo. Do you think the new eight-year deal and what seemed like his desire to stay with the team will change fans' perception of him? Is Nemo on the path to being inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame or, dare I say, having number nine retired? Or will fans criticize him and call him overrated? I think that the longer someone's here, the more the love extends. Now, I think most Met fans like Brandon Nemo. I mean, there are going to be some Met fans who say he's overrated. He doesn't hit for a high average. He doesn't seal enough bases. There's always going to be criticisms of him. Watching him every day, he's an incredibly valuable player. No question. And so I like Brandon Nemo. And yeah, the fact that he has a chance to spend 15 years here is awesome. I think the retired number thing is weird because the Mets have changed the bar for it. And that's not me knocking the, the Kuzman and Keith Hernandez decisions, but they have. You know, for a while, the bar was literally Tom Seaver. That was the bar. And Mike Piazza eventually. And now they've opened it up a little bit more. So I think Nimmo's love will only grow. But here's the key. Here's what puts it over the top. Championship. You win a World Series here. Your legacy just goes way up. I think that's the bottom line. Ed Flood writes, who do you think the Mets player has the best and most under-the-radar season this year. So someone who's like under the radar. So, you know, saying Pete Alonzo is not a great answer. Somebody we're not even thinking about who's going to have a great year for this team. Darren Ruff. (laughs) That would qualify. I'm going to go with... I think Jose Quintana will be their most consistent starting pitcher. And I don't know if that's me. Maybe you guys won't accept that answer saying, come on, they just gave him 13 million a year. I think Quintana, I loved what I saw from him in the second half last year with St. Louis. He was so good. And sometimes that moves to another year. Like you almost build off of that. So between the age questions of Verlander and Scherzer, between the adjustment of Kodai Senga, I could see him having A big year. And who knows about Carrasco? I think at the end of the day, and we said this about Bassett, right? At the end of 2022, if I would have said to you, who is the Mets' most important starting pitcher? Who is their most consistent? You would have said Chris Bassett, right, Pete? No question. I think when I ask you that question at the end of 2023, the answer is going to be Jose Quintana. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Because people may hear that and say, oh, that's a disaster. No, I think he could have a great year. And if Verlander and Scherzer both miss, you know, a little bit of time on the I.L., but nothing crazy, nothing like Scherzer last year or DeGrom last year, and Quintana makes 32 starts and those two guys make 25 starts, uh, I don't think that's a crazy answer. So that would be my answer, that it's him, Jose Quintana. I, I would, if I could put in, I think it's going to go with Water Escobar because I just think that last year was so bad, but the last month was so good. I think that's more of – I don't think he could achieve that the entire season, but I think we could see a bit more of that. And if he gets enough playing time, which I think he should, I think he's the guy that you'd be like, wow, we we that huge role for us down the line. I'm writing this down. I want to see how accurate our predictions are. You say Escobar. I say Quintana. We're going to have an episode in a couple of weeks where we give like real predictions for all the like stats – wins let's go and we got to hold ourselves accountable man you know we got to write this crap down so that when you listen to the end of the season rico we can grade ourselves i always do that every year on twitter 
where I, I put my predictions out. Like we all do. Most people do that on Twitter. And then at the end of the season, I repost it and say, how'd I do? And most of the time, it's not bragging. You know, it's not, oh, look at me. Look how smart I am. It's more, could you believe this guy had the White Sox winning the American League pennant? The hell's wrong with him? Joseph Vetter writes, it seems like the Mets are not interested in developing their prospects under Cohen. I love Stevie, but this may be a major flaw. He does not seem to have the patience it takes to let the young guys grow. Does this concern you? No, I completely disagree. Um, They haven't traded top prospects. What top prospects have they traded? If your point is they didn't call up Alvarez quick enough, uh, that Alvarez may not make the team this year, that Beatty may not make the team, and they waited too long on him, I think that's a different criticism. I don't think that's not being interested in developing prospects. That's being really patient. So I disagree with the thought. Here's what would concern me. If this team isn't winning, does Steve Cohen become an owner who walks into Billy Epler's office and says, do this? I, you know, because that's what Steinbrenner's biggest flaw was. Trade this guy. Go get this guy. I don't care the cost. It's something Dolan's been accused of doing from that mellow trade. Oh, let's throw in Timothy Moskov. I don't care. You still, at the end of the day, want to let your GM GM. When it comes to free agents, I think that's different. But when it comes to trading prospects, that would concern me. But Cohen has shown no sign of that. So it's just more of a theory that could concern me. It's not like Cohen's done that yet. Well, they, he did trade. They did trade Pete Crow Armstrong. And and I think they made, they'd made a mistake there, probably for the Javi Baez rental. So I think maybe that's in the back of some people's heads. But last year, they were very patient. I mean, they gave a ton. They gave a bunch of bodies for Darren Ruff, not to go back to that. But they didn't really give up anybody significant besides maybe J.D. Davis. But that's only because he had a better second half. Yeah. No, good good call, though, on Pete Crow Armstrong. You're right about that. They did give him up for Javi Baez. And I think we look back at that and say, eh, <laughs> that's, that wasn't a good one. Casey Manning writes, Casey from Queens. Said some nice things about the pod. We appreciate it. I've long had the belief that if Armando Benitez doesn't blow game one of the World Series or Timo runs hard on Zeal's ball off the wall, that we actually end up winning that World Series. Whenever I hear people talk about it's always the Mets were overmatched or they didn't really have a shot, I think it's BS. One of those things goes differently. It's an entirely different series, and their odds go up. What are your thoughts on that? Did we blow a golden opportunity or was it fool's goal? Thank you very much. So, yes and no. Obviously, you win game one of the World Series on the road, everything changes. Everything changes. And there's a really good chance that World Series is brought back to Yankee Stadium for game six. I know you can't follow the same script. You can't assume the Mets win game three. Can't assume anything after game one. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, when you have a lead in the ninth inning, which they had in 2015 as well, which is what really freaks me out, that 2000 and 2015, the two World Series I at least were able to witness as a Met fan, both went the exact same way. They really did. So, yeah, I think it changes everything. Now, if you ask me, do the Mets win the World Series? No, they probably don't. But I don't think it's a fait accompli. I don't think, wow, they're the Yankees, they have no shot. No, they have a shot. But you're asking me to predict what happens? The Yankees probably still win the World Series. And it's probably more painful for us because it means they may lose a game six or seven at Yankee Stadium, which is better than losing at Shea. 
but maybe we're closer. Well, we are closer to a championship. Maybe Roger Clemens sticks it up our ass again, this time in game six. So it changes everything. Just like if the Mets would have won game one against Kansas City, but we probably lose. That's the bottom line. We probably lose. Uh, I have one here for you. Oh, good. Give me one. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. All right. So uh, this, I think this could actually be a whole podcast, but at Zay 97 says biggest prospect bust from the Mets system. Paul Wilson. That'd be my number one. Paul Wilson. Paul Wilson. Really? Number one overall pick. He's the next Tom Seaver. I'll never forget him being interviewed after the Mets drafted him. And he sucked. He was so bad. And then he got hurt. And then they traded him to Tampa Bay for nothing. And he ended up having a career. It just wasn't any good. But yeah, because any other prospect we mentioned, Fernando Martinez, Alex Escobar, Alex Ochoa, whoever you want to come up with. I mean, any of these hordes of crap prospects that the Mets sold us on that didn't work out. This guy was the number one overall pick. That was our reward for losing 103 games in 1993. Generation K. Oh, you like Izzy? Oh, you like Pulsifer? Wait till you get a load of Paul Wilson. My ass. So that's the, my opinion. You ask me the biggest blown prospect of them all, the biggest one. To me, it's Paul Wilson. Why, you had somebody else? No, I mean, I just, uh, Fernando Martinez, I think, has to be up there. And Lacey Millage, again, just because, and I know they, they, what, I don't even know if they had any real, realistic years as a career. I mean, Millage went to the Nationals and what, uh, Martinez ended up going to the Astros. I don't remember if he got real playing time, but uh, those two were just so overhyped and we couldn't trade them for anything. Like, those are our guys that don't package them in anything. We talked about last episode that uh, put in a deal for Lacey Millage and then we're like offering for Gary Sheffield Lacey Millage last minute. It's like we overhyped them and then we like try to undersell, uh, undersell because we just were like, we had no choice. They yeah, I got that. Well, look, they're, they're all on the list. I mean, there's a, there's a long, long list of these kinds of prospects. By the uh, way, do you do you like the uh, new draft, the uh, the lottery in baseball? I don't think it's – I just don't feel it's as necessary uh, as other sports. Like the NBA needs a lottery. So I'm glad they have it, I guess, but it doesn't – I never felt it was needed. I don't think teams are tanking because they want the number one pick. I think owners are saying, we suck. Let's not spend money we may as well lose. So I think they're, the methods for why they're bad or the reasons for why they're bad are so different than why teams do it in the NBA or the NFL. Like, they literally want that draft pick. I, I know the Astros were able to sort of rebuild themselves a decade ago by being bad for a few years, the Nationals with Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg, but I really don't think that that's why teams are doing it. I think they're just cheap. That's what I think it comes down to. I'll throw another email at you, then you throw me more tweets as we go through the mailbag on the Rico. Uh, This is from Robert O'Keefe. Pete Evan, I have two odd, but I think conversation-provoking questions. Ooh, I like that. If you were in charge of the Met uniforms, what would you use, and what are your rankings of all the Mets uniforms? Uh, There's a second part, but I'll start with that. I just love the traditional pinstripes. I do. That, that's my go-to. Give me those pinstripes like when I was a kid. 
As far as old uniforms I would bring back, I'd bring them all back for a day. The racing stripe from 86, the garbage little uh, thing under the name in 93. I'd bring them all back. Even those white jerseys and white hats where they look like ice cream men. That's my favorite. Yeah, that was your favorite. It's terrible, but I loved it. (laughs) I'd bring them all back for a day. Like, I, I would do that. So one thing I love about the NBA, like, Oh, I love a lot of things about the NBA, but in terms of the uniforms, I love that the Nets every year are bringing back an old jersey. I would do it every Friday. Like, this this is from 1993. This is from 1986. His other question is, are there any changes you'd make to City Field? For example, adding the old neon figures like Shea Stadium. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> Dude, you nailed it, Robert. I love those neon figures from Shea. I'd bring that back. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything from City Field that would really, really change. They fixed their problems. You know, when they first opened the building, they ignored the history of the Mets. They have definitely fixed that. That's for sure. I'll think about that. By the end of the podcast, I will add something to City Field or something that I think they should add to City Field. They definitely need a retro night where everything's just hot neon colors and like crazy uh, Shea Stadium figures and stuff like that. And That'd be dope. everything has prices from 1965. All right, I'm in. Well, listen, speaking of old school, this goes back to 86. Talk to Marsh. Who would you have kept at third base after the 86 season? Hojo, Knight, or Mitchell? Mitchell, third base? Does that make sense? Kevin Mitchell? Yeah, no. I mean, they all play. Well, they let Ray Knight go, and I know that pissed a lot of people off. But did Ray Knight have that many more productive seasons after that? So, yeah, I get the idea of he's the World Series MVP. How do you let him go? But he was basically done. Like, so I always heard that criticism. Joe B would say that a lot. I think my dad would mention it. Like, how do you let Ray Knight go? They got the best of Ray Knight. They did. He won the World Series MVP. Let's have a party. He played, here it is. He played two more years in the major leagues after that. The Orioles in 87. And then in 1988, he went to Detroit. After that, he's out of baseball. He's pretty much done. But Howard Johnson was kind of the long-term guy. Remember this about Kevin Mitchell. They ended up trading Kevin Mitchell for Kevin McReynolds. And I know that McReynolds is not a beloved Met. Uh, You make a list of Met players that were hated. Kevin McReynolds was a productive player. And I don't know if enough people give him credit for that. Instead, it's more, oh, did you hear his wife called up WFAN once to complain about the criticism? I remember hearing that, but the guy came here and would hit 25 home runs and drive in 90 runs every season. So I think the Mets ultimately made the right decision. As crazy as that. He almost won the MVP in 1988, and Hojo was a good Met. So I think the decision that they made was the right decision. The biggest mistake the Mets made was Lenny Dykstra for Juan Samuel, okay, as far as breaking up the, the core of that 86 team, was Dykstra for Samuel, and then obviously a few years later, letting Darrell walk. That was, those were the things I would look back on and say those were the big mistakes. I have another one. It's pretty funny. Uh, well, I don't know if it's funny, but at <laughs> Yankees, at Yankees, WFAN, uh, Lawrence Passat, whatever his name is, have you ever stared at Rico Bronia's mailbag while he was using the bathroom, you sicko? <laughs> uh, I've never had the pleasure of uh, peeing next to Rico. Unfortunately, 
sometimes it's just well fun. that was that was predicate first of all that was for those who don't listen to the afternoon show because i don't know you hate craig whatever, whatever your reason we were having a discussion he started it about checking out other dudes you know while they're while they're going Ugh. and he talked about celebrities like boy that john madden he was something i only mentioned howard stern because i was sharing the bathroom once with him and of course i glanced over so that's where that sicko's question comes from. <laughs> Stared Rico Bronius. Didn't Jake Leisure do it with Francesa? Yes. And we, we refer to that, that Jay did that with Mike and gave him a big compliment. And he uh, actually said he lied, by the way. He lied. That was all fake. So <laughs> he did. Big news. Yes. I, I saw this tweet that I, I, we should answer. Donovan Casp writes, when the Braves win 102 games in 2023 to win the National League East, how many games behind will the Mets finish? <laughs> all right i'd say eight games behind would be my answer to that i guess that's my way of saying i think the mets win 95 games now we're just getting cruel here people what are we doing oh i did my math wrong that means they would win 94 games because that's 102 minus 94 uh go ahead and any but here's a question for me and the marlins potentially selling have any effect on them this year the and marlins what, the, selling the, did you see that yesterday? That they're potentially selling? Yeah. Moreno's back back with his team. And all of a sudden, I saw a tweet from um, somebody that, saying that the Marlins it, may potentially be back on the clock. It's all about who buys the team. It's like the same thing with the Nationals. Like, who's buying the team? If a billionaire is buying the team like Steve Cohen, of course it changes things. If it's someone who's going to keep the payroll at $80 million, then it doesn't change much. So whenever I hear about teams being sold, and sometimes as fans, we want our team to be sold. Like with the Wilpons, it couldn't be worse. But then we had preferences based on who was going to buy it. Like what's the motivation of the new owner? Uh, Louis3020 asks a really good question. Evan, with season tickets, do you decide to go to games based on the promotion? Like all bobblehead games are a must. How do you decide? <laughs> so now with uh, two children, and a wife and doing afternoons on WFAN. It's like a schedule. Uh, I, I don't want to be away on back-to-back nights. So I always tell that to my wife. Like she puts up with me going to games. She's great with it. She'll tell me when it's too much. I'll listen to her. So number one, I got to listen to my wife. Number two, I try to avoid back-to-back games. And number three, when DeGrom was here and pitching, I would always try to time out Jake Knight's. So if Jake was pitching on a Tuesday, that probably ruled out the Monday and the Wednesday game to try to avoid back-to-backs. I think what's changed this is that my oldest son really loves going to games now. So you know, back in the day when I had a baby at home, I wouldn't go to as many weekend games because I'm spending it with my family, rightfully so. So I'd actually go to more weekday games. Nowadays, it's different because on the weekends, he wants to go. My wife wants to go. My youngest son went to a few games last year. So it's kind of gone to, I'm going to go to more weekend games because my family's into it. There's a few giveaways I'll circle and say I'd want to go to it. But no, it's not all bobblehead days. Like there's a few games. I remember um, they gave away a, a a ring once, like a 69 replica, an 86 replica. Oh, I totally wanted to go to that. The Grom bobblehead, back-to-back Cy Young, totally wanted to go to that. The Seaver statue from this past year. Totally wanted to go with that. Those uh, were the I, things I, that I, I go to. 
So speaking of promotions, for the 60th anniversary, you got this sick presentation uh, for the season tickets. Am I correct? They had like a did they have like some sort of box? It was amazing. Yeah. Is, is there any possible way they could one up that? Like, what could they do? It's the sixty. It's sixty first season. It doesn't really mean as much. Is that, are we really celebrating anything? Is there something that you think? What, what do you think they're gonna? How do they think they're gonna present your season tickets to you? Like on a gold ticket. I expect Carlos Correa to show up at my house and say, just kidding. I'm a Met. (laughs) I'm here. No, I I think if they do that same box, that would be pretty cool. (laughs) The box itself was pretty cool. Maybe with other memories and other sounds. I don't know. It's so, it's so different because back in the day, the box would come with tickets. Now the box doesn't come with tickets because everything's digital. You know, the days of peeling off the tickets, it's all gone. That's not how they do it anymore. So it's strange. So you get this box and it's really nothing. It's just, hey, thanks for giving us a lot of money. Your tickets will be on your phone. Have a good day. It really should probably be like Howie Rose and Gary Cohen talking to you like, thanks so much. We'll see you at the game or something like that. Like introducing your season tickets. <laughs> that would be a good one. Joe the Fan writes, how big is the trade deadline going to be? And will the Mets trade prospects for a chance at the World Series? Based on last year, no. I just just based on Billy Epler's approach a year ago in which he didn't want to trade anything. Well, they obviously gave up a few pieces for Darren Ruff. That didn't work out. They gave up a bullpen piece, Colin Holderman, for Daniel Vogelback. I guess it sort of worked out. They made the minor trade for Michael Givens, but they balked at a deal for David Robertson. They balked at a deal for Wilson Contreras. So I guess what I would ask allowed to my fellow Medfin is if they didn't trade big prospects last year in a year in which they were on pace to win a hundred games and in an NL East pennant race, what makes you think they would do it this year? You know, maybe the, 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 the category of player would be different. You know, we talked about Otani earlier. Does that change things? Yeah. I think they'd offer more, but I don't know if they would offer what it would take. So I think with owners and general managers, you try to learn about their track records, try to learn about, Okay, this guy's good at this. This guy's good at that. We are only a year into Billy Epler, and the track record at the trade deadline is don't expect much because of what we saw last year. Best case scenario, by the way, for Otani and the Angels is that they're actually competitive enough where whether they make the playoffs or not, it's during that trade deadline. They need to keep him and not trade him because that's the, I, I don't like him being a rental anywhere. I prefer him staying where he is because at least he knows he hates it there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, Chris writes, right now, who do you think is the best team in the NL East? Uh, the Braves. To me, it's the Braves till the proven otherwise. They go and they win the division every single year. They won the World Series two years ago. I, I think that they are the team to beat, and the Mets have to take something away from them. That's that's really what it what it comes down to with them. Mets have to go beat them. And while they had some success in the regular season against them last year, and we all enjoyed it, they got to beat them. They got to beat them over 162. They have to beat them if it comes down to a playoff series. They got to freaking beat them. And, and that's why I, I still offer them the ultimate respect that they are the team to beat in the National League East. Granted, the Phillies won the pennant. And I respect how hot they got in October. But the Atlanta Braves and the New York Mets were 14 games better than the Philadelphia Phillies in the regular season. That's forgotten a little bit. But that's the facts. 
So it, it's going to be tough, man. The one good thing is that the Mets, the Phillies, the Braves, the Padres, the Dodgers, and whoever wins the Central feel like playoff teams. So unlike in the past, because of the playoff format and because of the roster, you weren't sure if the Mets would be a playoff team. I don't want to eat my words here, Pete, because obviously injuries can F things up, but the Mets should be a playoff team. That goes without question. They may not win the division, but they should at least be back in a best of three scenario in a wild card series. Yeah, they spent a ton of money to at least get back there. At least we hope. Uh, I have a I have a double question. One is from Charlie F- Frederick. The second one's for me. Uh, hypothetical here. City Field's closing in twenty forty. Who's throwing out the final pitch? Santana to Tolly, the Grom to Alvarez. Another duel down the road. Who's throwing out that ceremonial final pitch at City Field? And I have a follow up question. When they close City Field. <laughs> <laughs> God. If I'm around when they're closing City Field, boy, that is going to be something, man. So Shea Stadium opened in 64, and it closed in 08. So that's 44 years that it existed. So let's say City gets a 50-year run, right? Gets the 50 years. That would close it down in 2059. So how many years from now is that? 59, it's 23, 33, 40-something years. It's about 36 years, isn't it? 36 years. So that would make me about 76 years old. Oh, my God. Oh, I hope I'm around. I have a feeling that whoever's throwing the ball out is not born yet. <laughs> That's my prediction. <laughs> or is not on the Mets. I, I, Jacob deGrom is, uh, even though there are some Mets fans that hate him, I do think there'll come a time in which we will look back at him more universally, not just me and you saying it, as a beloved Met. I do think that'll happen. I don't think there's enough negativity with him where he just wouldn't be loved 20 years from now. Beltron's a little bit different. It's more complicated legacy like we talked about last time. So I do think there comes a time where DeGrom will be appreciated greatly by Met fans, which certainly opens him up as a guy that could become the face of the team. But he's also like a quiet guy who probably doesn't want to do it. I think David Wright, whatever he decides to come back, and be in the public spotlight. David Wright can be the face of this franchise as he grows into an older age. But maybe it's somebody we're least expecting. Maybe it's Brett Beatty. Maybe it's Brandon Nimmo. Uh, Maybe it's someone in the minor leagues right now or somebody that hasn't been drafted. Maybe it's Jet Williams. Is that his last name, Williams? I I get confused. Jet. Because all I know is Jet. Because of my son's name. I think it's Jet Williams. Uh, I'm looking it up. Yeah, Jet Williams. Wait, is it Jet Um, Williams? I don't know. Now you got me confused. Jet Mets. Let's see. Yeah, Jet Williams. I got it right. right so it. here's my second part. For a second. second part of my question, by the way. Yeah. It's my. Are you going Sunday? Am I going Sunday? I don't know what that means. Uh, so the, the Mets are <laughs> having. What does that mean? So so the Mets are having. Is it Saturday or Sunday? They're having like a presentation to all the people in Queens what they're doing to the 50 acres around City Field. Oh, Have you seen oh, it? Oh, 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 oh. No, I'm not going to that. No, no. They got a casino. Got, is that what's happening? Whatever they're doing, it's exciting, and I'm I'm pumped. Like I I can't go, but I I'm pumped to find out the information they're going to pump out to people because that is enticing. Because the one thing we talked about, the playoff run or whatever, 
we felt like the, the field, the, the stadium was a little empty towards the end of the season. I think that whatever they're going to do around there is going to cause constant excitement around City Field all season long. It'll it'll be really cool to have things around City Field. I think the Mets, and I have no knowledge here on how many tickets they've sold this year. I'm just making a prediction based on the past. The Mets are going to draw very well this year. What happens sometimes is that when teams have really good years, they don't feel the attendance bump until a year or two later. So if you look back at, I'll give you an example, and I'll back it up with facts so I'm not just speaking out of my ass. The 2007 New York Mets drew better than the 2006 New York Mets. And obviously in 2006, the Mets were you know the best team in the National League. They were the best team in baseball for a long time. But they actually drew better the following year. And I'll back it up. So I do have the facts. They did very well in 06. They had 3.3 million fans. The next year, they got 3.8 million fans. There was a really, really big jump from one year to another. And that's what happens. That's what usually happens. So like 1997, the Mets are in a pennant race. 1.7 million fans. Following year, 1998, 2.2. Following year, 2.7. Following year, 2.8. So sometimes it, it just takes a while. 1986, Mets win the World Series, 2.7. Following year, 3 million fans. So the Mets last year had 2.5 million fans at their games. It was the highest attendance they've had since 2016, the year after they won the pennant. I would guess that that number will go back up. And so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be cool to have things around City Field. I don't mean to ignore the question. But I do think you normally see a bump the year after. By the way, now that I'm looking at attendance, the only year in City Field's history where they had 3 million fans, granted there's less people in the building than Shea Stadium, so I'm not comparing it to Shea Stadium. I'm comparing it to just City Field. Their only year where they got to 3 million fans was year one. First ever year of City Field, 3.1 million. They have not even come that close to 3 million fans. The highest attendance at City Field, just City Field, that they've gotten to besides that was 2016. The year after they won the pennant. Their third highest, 2015. So it shows you that it's the year after. So I think the Mets' attendance will be better this upcoming season than it was this past season. Because sometimes with people spending their money, they want to, hey, prove it. Go prove you that good. And so it's usually the year after where the attendance bumps up. One real quick thing, and we'll have another mailbag down the road. It's fun to do every once in a while. Uh, The lefty reliever market. No one asked me about it on the mailbag. I'll bring it up my freaking self. Andrew Chafin is still out there. Bring him in. Zach Britton is still out there. Bring him in. I prefer Chafin. I think he's the safer bet. Matt Moore is still out there. It is interesting to me that three left-handed relievers are all just sitting there. So I don't know if they're asking for too much money or what the deal is. I think that would be the cherry on top to this bullpen. When you look at this offseason, and we all know what the criticisms are about the offense, and they basically had to just maintain pitching-wise by replacing guys. They were playing a lot of defense when it came to pitching. They added Verlander, Senga, and Quintana, but they had to replace DeGrom and Bassett and Walker. I love what they've done with this bullpen. Now, I also know that year to year, you never know what you're going to get. I think we all understand that. That's all the risks. The risks of, is Adovino going to be as good? Is Diaz going to be as good? 
Totally get that. But I love so far what they've done with this bullpen. Adding Brooks Raleigh, a little underrated kind of move that I love. The cherry on top would be one more lefty. If I had to rank those three, I don't know how, I, I guess Chafin would be number one. Britain is more of a risk because he's coming off Tommy John. He barely pitched last year, didn't pitch much the year before. But I do think he's got one more run left in him. I've said that before. Kind of like how David Robertson had another run left in him. So maybe for Zach, it would be fitting to have that run with Buck Showalter and have that run in New York with the other team. So I am intrigued by Zach Britton. Obviously, money matters. How much of it's guaranteed matters. But that would be the cherry on top. I don't see anything else coming, though. Now, you want to go add another outfielder because of the uncertainty of Starling Marte? I don't think they are. I don't think there's a big trade coming. So I think this is the offseason. This is the team. And we are only a few weeks away before spring training, which I cannot wait for. I can't wait for that. But either way, we're getting closer. And I did promise you guys something. I said a few months ago, at some point, we will have a Max Scherzer versus Justin Verlander podcast where we break down their careers. We break down who should start on opening day, the legacy of Max versus the legacy of Justin, and that's coming soon. Now, as far as the rewatch is concerned, I've went through a lot of tweets and a lot of emails. There is no consensus on this rewatch. And basically what that means is it's a game on YouTube. I'll give it a couple of weeks. We'll all watch it on our own time, and then we'll have one podcast dedicated to that game. It's all over the place. There's been a lot of different feelings on what game we should watch. There's been a lot of losses. There's been a lot of wins. So I'm starting to think I got to make an editorial decision. I'm starting to think that I just got to tell people what we're going to watch or what you choose to watch. I'm not a freaking professor. If you don't want to watch the game, don't watch the freaking game. Don't download that week's edition of Rico. What can I tell you? Or download it and listen to it anyway. But I got to tell you, Pete, I'm leaning a certain way. I'm leaning a certain way. Can I give a suggestion in in the world that we live in today? Social media is very nice. You could always do a Twitter poll. I was thinking about that. I've done a lot of Twitter polls recently. A lot of them. Uh, I could. I could. The problem. Here's the problem as I'm losing my voice with the Twitter poll. A lot of people don't listen to the Rico and they're just going to pick a game to torture us or they're just going to be a douche about it. So if I could do like an internal, hey, these people listen, they're actually going to watch the rewatch game, then I'd like it more. But most of these trolls on Twitter are just going to troll. That's all they're going to do. So then what you do is the reverse. You put it out there and then go with the lowest tally. <laughs> or go the opposite. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that if I put out two wins and two losses, the losses are going to win because people are going to say, oh, yeah, let's watch a loss. And there are Met fans who want to watch a loss. Like I've had game 706 recommended a lot for some reason. Oh, because we're sick in the head. You asked me that a long time ago. If there's something wrong. Yes, we are. The Met fan, and I'm not speaking for everybody, but there's a, a a ton of us that are diehard Mets fans that I'm not saying that we get off on the torture, but we definitely f- – it's it's close to us. So when something okay. goes wrong, we, we jump ship. We jump right, right so, into that, 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 that feeling. So here's what we're going to do. All right, just It plopped into my head. 
on the next Rico, which usually is Sunday into Monday, that's when we record it, then you guys can listen to it, I will present, we will present four game options, okay? Two wins, two losses. We will announce it on the podcast. We will even post it in the description of that episode. And based on your emails and tweets, we will decide. Okay, so we'll give you the options. Okay, so therefore it will be a true listener of Rico Bronya vote as opposed to trolls on Twitter. Okay, so we will come up with the four based on a lot of the recommendations. We'll talk about the positives of the four, the negatives of the four, and then we'll have it in the description of the podcast too. I'll even tweet it out there as well, I guess. And then I'll listen to the people. I'll count it up like with my own handwriting. And we'll decide which of those four games we'll watch. We'll see how that idea goes, right? So that's the plan. But we do appreciate you listening. Of course, you can always interact with us by emailing thericob at gmail.com and obviously tweeting at us anytime you want. We appreciate you listening and downloading. Pete's going to produce Tiki and Tierney all week. I'll be with Craig all week. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.